Welcome to the Future of Coding. I'm Ivan Rees, and I'm going to just pretend for this episode that this is your first time listening to the show, because, you know, it could be. So what is this show? This show is from the Future of Coding community, which is a group of people who gather together on the internet around the singular vision of wanting to completely change what it means to program a computer. But of course, <laughs> that singular vision is not at all singular. Every single person in the community has their own idea of how programming should be completely reimagined. This podcast gives us the opportunity to kind of go around and talk to a bunch of different people with different visions about reimagining programming and get their thoughts or to reflect on the work that they've done or to look at some interesting bit of history that might inform the work that we do as we push towards a, a better, perhaps more imaginative or my favorite weird future. Today's guest is Ella Hepner, and Ella first came onto the radar of our community back in the fall when she released a project called Vlosure, which is a very novel style of visual interface for the Clojure programming language. And it features these nested circles to represent the nested structure of Clojure's Lisp code. So whereas in Lisp, you have parentheses that are used to group together expressions and nest them to form larger expressions. In Vlosure, these are circles nested within circles. And it sort of gives a visual spatial character to the code that is um, it's there in the lisp it's just not there in the text in the same way and vlosure also does a bunch of really interesting things with the user interface we will get into all that and some of ella's other very interesting work in the interview i want to thank our two sponsors for today glide and replit and you will hear more about them at the midway sponsor break without further ado here is ella when I first learned coding, primarily I was learning it because I was interested in doing generative art, actually. That was kind of the, the way that I got into programming initially. Um, in, in the high school that I went to, uh, I was lucky enough that they were able to like give all of the students laptops. And that was wonderful for me because, you know, when I was sitting in class, instead of listening, I could be doing something actually productive and, uh, you know, learning to code. So, <laughs> and, you know, I, I would, you know, sit in class and make little like generative art backgrounds for my for my computer and other people's computers. And uh, that's kind of what got me into uh, coding in the first place. In terms of like my professional background, I went to uh, Virginia Tech, uh, graduated from there about two years ago with a degree in computer science. Up until a couple months ago, I was working at the University of Virginia in the School of Medicine, um, doing like web development stuff for research into online health interventions. Um, and then for the last month or two, I have been uh, taking some time off because I've got a couple of projects uh, that I'm working on, Vlogger being one of them, that I wanted to have some time to work on. Since it sounds like you learned how to program kind of in the later part of high school. And I think by that point, you were probably, you know, like well aware that programming was a thing. Do you remember at all what you thought that programming was like back before you actually learned what it really was and how those two things compare? Hmm. I can't remember uh, anything like any particular impressions of, of what programming was like, other than just it being like very, uh, you know, opaque and, and kind of, you know, almost almost magical. You know, like there were people called programmers who did, you know, some some magical thing that made computers do interesting stuff. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I, I had no idea of the details. So it turns out it's in reality very much like you expected. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of dark magic, at least. Yeah. 
I have this tendency when I when I write the questions for one of these interviews to leave the very heavy, involved, deep stuff to the end and then kind of front load the interview with a bunch of lighthearted, fluffy, fun questions. And what what inevitably ends up happening is we spend, you know, two hours talking about some wild tangent from one of the light, fluffy questions and then never get to the actual real meaty stuff. So I am <laughs> I am gonna want to get into talking about Vlosier pretty quick. But just before we do that, the one kind of lighter thing I wanted to talk a little bit about were the uh, generative art YouTube videos that you've made. Mm -hmm. There are three of them so far. Uh, for one, as, a, as a, an act of listener advocacy, I want to suggest that everybody listening to this actually uh, go to the show notes for this episode. I will have links to these videos. I might even like embed them on the show page because they are absolutely beautiful and the music in them is just delightful. You could just like zone out and look at them and the generative art that is going on in them is just beautiful to look at and the music, you know, accompanying them works perfectly. But then you're also talking through how the algorithms work and it has this very hypnotic quality to it and i've just absolutely loved watching these videos and it made me wish that there was like an infinite stream of them where i could just you know put them on and have it run for hours and hours and so in in pursuit of that kind of a, a goal maybe are you planning on doing more of these kind of videos what did you do to make these first ones it seems like they took a lot of work where did these videos come from and 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 do you think you'll be carrying them on into the future? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly planning to. Um, and, and thank you for your kind words. It's uh, very nice to hear you say. Um, and all the feedback that I've received on them has been uh, really wonderful. So I'm absolutely planning on continuing. I, I've been doing generative art for a long time. And, you know, I, I, I don't use um, like social media stuff all that often. I, I just find it kind of uh, like boring. So like I, I would rarely like post a lot of the, the generative art stuff that I did. Oftentimes I'd, you know, show it to a friend or something and then it would just sit on my uh, laptop for, you know, a year or something <laughs> doing nothing with it. Um, and eventually I, I thought, you know, I should I should um, actually publish some of this stuff and, and make something cool out of, you know, all this time that I'm spending. And so that's that's what the uh, idea behind the YouTube channel has been. And they, they have been uh, a lot of work to produce. And um, it's been about maybe two or three months since the last one. And, and since that one, I've been trying to, to rethink uh, the way that I'm producing the videos in order to kind of make them less taxing to produce. Hopefully that I can, you know, be able to pump them out faster, create that infinite stream of, of uh, generative art content that you're uh, <laughs> talking about. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to, to making more of those in the future. And just for my own curiosity, what's the process like to make one of those videos? Because there's like a mixture of animated examples and then also some cases where you're actually like drawing out what the vectors are doing. Uh, it just seems like there's a lot of different elements that each need to be separately created and, and kind of brought together. Yeah, so so generally the process just starts um, with me having some, you know, topic in generative art that I find interesting and I'd like to, you know, make a video explaining and I will just kind of uh, start making some code, writing up, you know, whatever is necessary for the, the piece. I just kind of make a couple of variations. Like, uh, you know, the, the first video that I did was uh, a video about flow fields, which are kind of a classical uh, technique in, in generative art. Uh, tons and tons of artists have used them, but they're still really uh, beautiful and interesting. So I thought that uh, that would be a good place to start. And for that video, uh, once I knew that, you know, that was going to be my topic, I just sat down and, and coded up a flow field algorithm. And once I was happy with the way that it looked and everything, I started writing a script and I would go through kind of different uh, various examples of how the algorithm could be used. 
so I start with, um, you know, the coding and making the art. And then uh, retrospectively, I kind of go through and try to find out um, what would be the best way to explain this. And then sometimes that involves, you know, writing more code or making diagrams, you know, like you said, drawing stuff out um, to kind of help people understand what's going on. And then, yeah, film it, record it, get a friend of mine to make some music for me. And uh, <laughs> that's basically the process. By the way, it, uh, you were mentioning you liked the um, the music to them. And if anybody is interested in in, uh, in that music, then you should check out uh, Inconvenient Body. That's a friend of mine who does uh, all the music that's been in my videos so far. So I'm really grateful to her. I'm going to do the worst thing that every music reviewer does. And uh, as a musician, I hate this. But as a, as a person listening to music, I love it. It reminds me very much of like the early Aphex Twin sort of selected ambient works. Having that kind of music accompanied with this really beautiful generative artwork is just like such a such a great mood to find oneself in. So I've, I've really enjoyed discovering the work of this musician through your videos as well. So I'll have a link to their their stuff in the show notes also. I'm a huge fan of Aphex Twin and, and so is uh, my friends. So she'll be she'll be very happy to hear that. <laughs> what tools are you using to do this generative art? Is it like a like a closure library or are you using processing or what kind of what kind of generative art tools are you fond of in this work? Um, so, yeah, I, I do most or really all of my generative art uh, nowadays in closure or, or uh, usually closure script uh, for the videos that I've made so far. And I'm using a uh, JavaScript graphics library called pixie.js as um, one of my main, you know, graphics libraries. Um, and I also do some stuff using uh, various uh, Clojure graphics um, engines. I've been using one recently called just Clojure 2D, which is just a great little, uh, you know, pure Clojure graphics library. I I've used a ton of different graphics libraries over the years, and I'm not particularly picky. I tend to just, you know, find something that works, build my own wrapper around it, and get going. <laughs> So speaking of closure, let's get into the the, the reason that uh, you came onto my radar and why I wanted to bring you on the show, which is your recent project, Vlosure, which I I would normally do a, a little spiel where I'd explain what it is, but I, I actually want to let you explain it, like what it looks like and what it would feel like to work with it for somebody who is listening to this and might not have seen your video introducing the project. Sure. Yeah. So uh, the basic idea behind Vlosure, um is that it is a uh, programming interface for programming in a normal Clojure script, right? So there's there's nothing special to the language itself, but what's special is the interface. So you know, normally writing Clojure involves uh, a text editor. You have you know nested parentheses and you know brackets and all that kind of stuff. But in Vlosure, the hierarchy is instead represented with a structure of circles. So uh, wherever you'd have a pair of parentheses in normal closure, you'll instead have a circle. And uh, kind of subforms within larger forms are represented as smaller circles within a bigger circle. And of course, since, since closure uh, includes not just lists, but also things like, you know, vectors and maps uh, that have their own special kind of encapsulating uh, characters. Um, vectors are represented as uh, octagons in closure. Maps are kind of represented as these circles with little spikes on them. Um, and so basically, uh, Vlosure is a sort of drag and drop visual interface for programming Clojure script. It, it's it's hard to describe uh, the, the idea of it in in words, um, but thankfully it's um, up on Vlosure.io. So if anybody uh, is listening to this and can't quite uh, picture what I'm describing in their head, just go look at it for yourself. I, I worked a lot on trying to make it very intuitive and easy to pick up for people who already know Clojure script. So it should be uh, very easy to kind of see what's going on if you're uh, uh, familiar with Clojure. 
And I'll also include the uh, demo video that you created in the show notes for this so that uh, anybody just happening upon the website for this podcast can watch that presentation you gave, which uh, serves as a really wonderful introduction to this environment. It's a really concise video. Like I think it's only like eight minutes or so, but even in like the first three or four minutes, you cover so many really interesting things that feel like they could be explored in great depth in a longer form. So that's, that's why I wanted to get you on the podcast. Talk a little bit about how you arrived at this idea of evaluating by grabbing a form and dragging it to one of the corners. Was that something that just occurred to you? Was that something that you tried some things and then arrived at this one? How did that come about? From the start, I knew that, you know, this was going to be a visual interface. And uh, the most natural uh, thing that popped out once I kind of had this idea of, you know, representing uh, S expressions as circles with smaller circles inside was that clearly this interface would be great with like a drag and drop system rather than, uh, you know, any kind of other uh, editing system. And, and so when you're building a program in Vlozier, you're sort of dragging circles around, you know, moving them around, copying them, deleting them. So just naturally, the whole thing lends itself to a, a drag and drop based workflow. Uh, so with that in mind, um, the idea of just kind of having this uh, REPL zone or, or eval zone where you can just drag any piece of code and see uh, what it evaluates to um, just kind of seemed like the most natural thing to do when, once the, uh, the the basic idea was there. And, and you know, uh, deleting things goes uh, the same way. You know, in the bottom right corner of the screen, there's the, the eval zone. And in the bottom left corner, there's a discard zone. And if you ever want to delete something, you just click on it and drag it to the bottom left corner. So so I uh, tried to keep the whole thing uh, very, like, drag and drop focused, uh, in part because I want this to work not just on uh, computers, but also on mobile devices. I'm, I'm aiming for this to be a very uh, cross-platform tool. That, that kind of, like, drag and drop uh, system seems like the best way to go. It's nice because it's not just cross-platform, but it's also like cross-interface paradigm or whatever term you want to use, like using drag-and-drop as a way of, of invoking action rather than something like command-return or whatever like you get out of a more traditional REPL is nice because it's just another way of bringing some spatial character into the way that you interact with this programming tool. And it feels like that's sort of a missing ingredient that a lot of programming tools have now that we're kind of into the mobile world and maybe someday into the VR world where if you want to be doing programming that is fully sort of fluid and conversant with the medium that it's in, if that medium is very spatial in nature, the programming also needs to be very spatial in nature. And so having that way of taking some of the very familiar conventions from a traditional REPL-based environment, but just adding that little bit of, of tangibility by making everything about dragging and dropping just feels really nice. It's one of those things that seems very obvious in hindsight, but it's the kind of thing where if it was so obvious in hindsight, like we'd have so many more tools that are doing it. And so that's why I think Vlozier is really interesting, especially because you didn't just stop at grabbing a form and dragging it to the eval corner and then there's your result or to the discard corner and then it's gone. Those two corners also hold on to the last value that was put there. So in the eval corner, it's whatever the result of the last evaluation was. And in the discard corner, it's whatever you discarded. And so in the discard corner, it acts almost like an undo stack. If you change your mind, you can grab something back out of there and bring it back. Uh, was that something that just kind of occurred to you as you were building it? Or, or how did you arrive at that idea? What, uh, what sort of led you to have that as a capability? 
like you said, you know, uh, the idea behind Flojer is, is a relatively simple one. It's really the, the core is just a, a way of representing S expressions as uh, kind of like a, this little visual circular structure. Um, and I feel like, you know, once you have that idea, the, the rest of Lozier just kind of writes itself. So, you know, once you've got the, the drag and drop little REPL zone, you know, of course, that's going to display whatever uh, the result of the, the eval is. And so it just seemed uh, obvious that, you know, if clicking on that and dragging to some other area, that's not going to do anything anyways. So, you know, we might as well make it so that doing that uh, drags out the result of the evaluation. Yeah, that just kind of jumped out to me. It seemed like the the obvious thing to do. Uh, and one thing I should say uh, in the future, I'm planning to make it so that you can pull out not just like the last eval result or the last thing that you've discarded, but you'll be able to click on the eval zone or the discard zone and see like a history of all the the evaluations that you've done or all the things that you've discarded and uh, pull any of them back out into the main program. Yeah, that would be super nice. That seems like another one of those things where once you've added the feature of being able to pull things back out of there. It's just like the next feature writes itself. And I, I love seeing environments that are designed that way where it's like, hey, if we do this one little twist, then it shakes all of this fruit out of the tree. And then this is a terrible analogy because it's not like after that fruit falls, the rest of the fruit is easier to get. But <laughs> it's the kind of thing where you can just keep pulling on the thread and like more and more and more cool stuff comes out. So I like that a lot. And that, that if it sounds like I'm happy about this environment it's because it's like giving me this this feeling of excitement about like there's so much possibility here that uh i really love seeing whenever i find one of these new environments that has some some fresh ideas in it that are waiting to be explored so it's uh it's always fun to get to look at one of these things as it's early in its evolutionary process yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I kind of share the excitement. You know, I, I feel like I'm kind of in the same position as, as the rest of the people who are seeing this where, you know, I, I didn't do anything particularly special to come up with the idea. You know, it just struck me. And, and you know, I've just kind of been doing the obvious thing ever since, uh, you know, I came up with it. So yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see uh, where this goes to. Um, and and uh, more than anything, I'm excited to see um, kind of the ideas that other people have uh, w uh, on like how to, to expand Flosher in the future. Um, so far, this has just been like a solo project. But, uh, you know, some people have already forked the repository on GitHub and stuff. So I'm very interested in seeing, uh, you know, what directions other people take this. Have anybody shared any good ideas that you're uh, particularly excited about playing with? I've gotten tons of great suggestions uh, about different things to add, you know, just little... Uh, like UI features, like, uh, you know, you should be able to drag form bars around or, or stuff like that. Speaking of the form bars, let's talk about those, because that's another part of the interface that feels like it's a very simple seed of an idea. But the way that it sort of manifests is, I think, quite, quite rich and quite nice. There's a little sort of, you know, edit the interface mode that you can go into along each of the four edges of the screen at the at the center of those four edges of the screen there's a little plus button and if you click one of those plus buttons it'll make a little bar appear along that edge uh, with a couple of like empty circles in it and then uh, when you're back and working on your Vlozier program you can grab any form from your program that's the, the sort of nested construction of circles at the center of the screen and drag it down onto the form bar along the edge where you where you click that plus button and made the little form bar appear and you can have uh, these form bars along any any side of the screen and you can also when you're in that edit mode um, add a new form bar kind of on either of the three sides sort of like the like the hemisphere away from that edge of the screen and keep stacking these form bars up and make um, 
you know, like a, a larger sort of interface element there if you want to be saving a lot of stuff. And I think uh, in the video that you showed, you have form bars along the left and right sides of the screen that have uh, quite a few different things in them, like some common closure functions that you might want to use. How how are those here I go. I'm trying to find a way to repeat the same question that I've asked three times already, but uh, uh, here's what I'll do. I know how I'll approach this. I, ha I have a two and a half year old and her favorite thing right now is to is to reference something and say, talk about it. <laughs> so I, I'll, I'll point at the conceptual notion of the form bar and say, talk about it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, the form bars are, um, I think, a really interesting part of, of Lozier's design. Um, because they act um, kind of both as like a, a toolbar of, you know, like common functions that you'll want to reference frequently, um, and you can drag them out and, uh, you know, keep them or and, and add them wherever you want. Um, so, so it can act as that, but it can also act as uh, something much more transient, like sort of a clipboard, you know, because at any time uh, when you're writing uh, a Flojure program, you can click on a circle and drag it into one of your form bars, and it will stay there for as long as you want it to. And then you can, you know, drag it back out later uh, to, to kind of copy uh, that that form you dragged in to another uh, place in your program, or you can throw it into the REPL or, you know, discard it from the form bar once you're done with it. So the form bars act as kind of a, a combination of like a normal toolbar that kind of like has a bunch of fixed things on it, um, but also a, a, a kind of very versatile clipboard where uh, if you have something that you, uh, you've written a little piece of code and you say, okay, well, I'll probably want to write stuff like this, you know, all over the place, then you can throw that into a form bar and, you know, use it uh, whenever you like. Um, so yeah, the, the form bars are, are one feature of Lozier's design that I'm definitely uh, happiest with. Um, and the, uh, as you said, they can appear on uh, any side of the screen and I've tried to make it so that they're as like flexible as possible in terms of uh, kind of how the user interacts with them. You can make them bigger, smaller, uh, move them around to different sides of the screen you can have uh, however many of them that you want. Um, and a big uh, reason for, for that kind of amount of customizability is that, like I said, I'm aiming for this to be useful on a bunch of different platforms. Um, so, so far, I've mostly just uh, been using this on uh, my desktop, um, but uh, I want it to be useful on tablets and phones as well. Um, and there, there isn't like a, a uh, you know, a, a computer version of Lozure and a uh, iPhone version of Lozure or, or a mobile version. It's all just the same code base um, that just kind of uh, dynamically adjusts to whatever aspect ratio um, you happen to be using. Um, and so, you know, in a in a landscape uh, aspect ratio, it might be uh, more useful to have your form bars on the side. But then if you switch to landscape, like if you're on your phone, then, of course, you'll probably want to have them on the top and the bottom of the screen because, uh, you know, having them on the side will will end up taking a lot of space uh, in the UI. So. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was kind of the, the idea behind the form bars, just having uh, something that's very, very flexible um, that makes it easy to uh, kind of copy and paste stuff uh, to different areas of your program and to have something that um, can store uh, kind of useful functions or whatever in a long-term way. And they're very similar in purpose to some things that we've seen in other tools that we've looked at on this show and that I'm sure you've seen in your own explorations of the wonderful world of software, uh, where normally this kind of a panel would be 
something that's stuck on one specific edge of the screen. So like there'd be a left sidebar or something like that where your symbol library goes. And I'm thinking here of sort of uh, some some of Toby Shockman's projects like recursive drawing uh, for any of the listeners who are familiar with that, where the left sidebar is where each new shape that you create gets a little slot on that left side. And I'm curious, Ella, if you considered doing an interface for Vlozier that was more rigidly defined, like on the left, there is this, on the right, there is that. Or if right from the start you were thinking about, no, I, I can't do anything where a specific side of the screen is reserved for a specific function because it's going to be cross-platform in the way that it is now. Um, the, the latter, yeah. I always kind of knew that I wanted this to be a, a cross-platform project. And for that reason, I wanted the uh, the UI to be as like uh, customizable as possible. So, so that was always kind of the intention. And that's it's neat, the, uh, the design that you've arrived at with the form bars, because they are a sort of an interesting alternative to the sidebar panels. Um, but of course, sidebar bar panels aren't flexible in the way that these form bars are. And they're also similar to like floating windows like you'd get on a, you know, a windowing desktop operating system in that they kind of, they don't like carve out their own space from the main canvas. They kind of float on top of what's there. And you have that little bit of flexibility to put them on any edge or to have like four of them, one along each edge and and like four, you know, nested structures of form bars, because it's not just like a single bar, you can have them kind of stacked. And is it like an arbitrary depth? Does it only go like one or two or three deep? Or is it just as many as you want? Oh, yeah, it's arbitrary depth Uh, right now. So, you know, if you stack too many of them, then it'll start just kind of like overlapping all the other UI elements. Uh, so it's easy to kind of, you know, if, if you add five form bars to the to the left side of the screen, then you're probably not going to really have any room for anything else. Um, but there, there's no like hard limit on it right now. So, you know, add form bars at your own risk, I guess. Yeah. And I love that. Like it's it's this nice balance between uh, the structure that you get out of a rigid UI, but the flexibility that you'd get out of floating panels in a way that sort of seems to take a little bit of the best of both. And so I think that these these form bars are just like for such a for such a simple conceptual ingredient, there's a lot of interesting detail to the result that you've arrived at that I think is worth other folks um, perhaps listening to this and, and hopefully the people out there in the world who are seeing Vlozier picking up on that and, and thinking about that because there's some cool some cool qualities to this UI that I think are um, a little bit distinct from what I'm used to seeing in other similar projects. Another aspect of the design that I wanted to ask about is the arrangement of top-level forms is uh, sort of along a single axis. So you can have a a bunch of different top-level forms that are each, you know, able to be evaluated separately. And in your video, by default, you have this, this sort of main axis that these forms are arranged along going from left to right. And so each time you make a new top level form, it kind of goes to the right of the previous one or what have you. And you have the option to rotate that main axis. So you can have your top level forms going up and down the screen or at a kind of an arbitrary angle of your choosing. And that is interesting to me because if I were building Vlozier, I would have immediately gone, no, it should be a free spatial 2D canvas and you can put your forms wherever you want them to go and just have free space and, you know, zoom in and out and move things around and organize them. And what you have is something that is more constrained. It's more structured. And I'm wondering if that's something that you did 
deliberately where you thought maybe about doing a free 2D canvas and decided not to, or if it was just something you did because that mirrors nicely the way that Clojure works as a sort of a linear language being text-based, or if it's just something where that's what you did for now and you might change that in the future as the environment grows and, and evolves. The idea behind that was was mainly just to kind of uh, keep coherence with the way that people normally write closure code. You know, um, in, in a closure file, the, the forms that you write, the, the top level forms aren't arbitrary. They, they have an order to them. I really want to maintain kind of compatibility with uh, kind of the normal structure of code in Blozier. I, I don't want to take this um, too much into like kind of being its own environment. I'd, I'd really love for this to just be an interface for the existing environment that is Clojure and Clojure Script. Um, so, so I, I, I think having, you know, just kind of this open 2D canvas where you can place them uh, wherever you want would be interesting. Um, but for now, I, I think that uh, kind of maintaining the, the kind of linear ordering of, of forms makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes total sense to me. It's uh, a very kind of pragmatic decision in that sense where my inclination to always make things free spatial 2D canvases is like purely about aesthetics and, and more of that impulse I alluded to earlier about wanting to burn everything down and start over again. So totally. Yeah, no, I, I totally see where you're coming from with that impulse. I've had to fight that um, myself. Uh, in, in developing Vlozier. Um I actually made a, a prototype uh, not called Vlozier. I don't think I really had a name for it, but of this basic idea of, you know, like a visual lisp with uh, kind of a, a circular interface um, nine months or a year ago. And uh, in that one, um, I wasn't using uh, Clojure as kind of the underlying language. I was just sort of defining a new lisp ad hoc. And, and so that was kind of the, the first, uh, you know, direction that I tried to take this project but then I realized like, oh, it's, it's really hard to defi- to like design a whole, you know, good programming language. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I kind of uh, stopped working on that and kind of t- took a step back and, and thought, well, you know, Clojure already has so many wonderful tools. There's no point in reinventing the wheel here. Um, I can just make this work as an interface for programming Clojure rather than, you know, trying to, to build my whole own, uh, you know, programming language in addition to, to trying to build my own, you know, visual interface. On the aspect of it being a, a sort of a mirror of existing text-based closure in that there's also a little button in the top right corner you can click on and it shows you the textual representation of of the code that you're working on so you can flip back and forth between the the sort of the graphical circles version and the text version with parentheses and, and indentation and such um, are there any features from a more conventional programming tool like a text editor or terminal or something like that that isn't present in Vlozier that you're sort of or that you have thought about wanting to find a way to bring across into this more visual realm yeah absolutely um so i think that uh you know one one big thing in in lisps and uh, or, or closure in lisps in general is structural ed- structural editing so you know you're you're not really thinking about this program that you're writing as a text file but instead, it's this hierarchy, you know, defined by or it, defined in the form of a text file. Um, but but ultimately, you know, you're, it makes more sense to think of your program as uh, this kind of like tree-like structure rather than uh, a long string of text. Um, and so structural editing, of course, you know, means uh, kind of editing things from that perspective rather than from the perspective of, of text. And Vlozier, in some ways, kind of lends itself very nicely to structural editing, you know, you're you're not dealing with text at all. You're just dragging around these different forms to, to various areas. Um, but of course, there are uh, many kind of elements from normal uh, structural editing, like plugins and stuff, that are missing in Vlozier. 
Um, some, some, uh, you know, obvious kind of structure editing tools are, are there, you know, like dragging things around, but there are all kinds of interesting, uh, kind of structural editing operations, um, that, that don't, that aren't super easy to kind of translate to the kind of drag and drop interface that, uh, Vlozier has. And I'd very much like to, uh, kind of include more features to make the editing more powerful. And, uh, what I, uh, I'm planning on doing right now is I'm going to be adding, um, certain so the form bars right now just contain forms um but you know a, a bar or you know a, a toolbar or whatever normally doesn't just contain you know uh things that you can drag into your program but it'll also contain like you know uh options and, and different commands that you can click on and uh so i'm planning on adding kind of special forms that you can add to your form bars where maybe one of them will be like uh if you click on this uh you know little button in your form bar and then you go and, you know, click on some uh, form, then it'll maybe kind of uh, wrap that form in an enclosing circle or something, you know, or, or whatever kind of structural editing uh, kind of operations you might find useful um, could, I think, be built into just sort of a, a button that could live on uh, one of your form bars wherever you'd like it to live. And you can click on that and then it'll pull up a little, uh, you know, interface or whatever for doing kind of structural editing stuff. So um, that that is uh, something that I'm uh, working on right now, and I think that'll be a, a big uh, improvement to kind of the UI of Lozier. Um But for now, it's it's uh, it doesn't have anything uh, too special like that. I think that would actually be a really interesting way to add the idea of tools. Like I, when I think about tools, I mean that's such a you know a, a broad term. Um, but tools in the sense of like, uh, in Photoshop or something like that, like the brush tool and the selection tool and the, and the other brush tool and the other brush tool, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, all the brushes, Yeah, those tools in, in a, in a Photoshop like program, they're, they're modal. So you activate one of them and then clicks into the canvas, invoke that tool and the tool does whatever it does to your pixels in the canvas. Mm -hmm. And I think that it would be really interesting in a Vlozure like environment to have a, like a tools palette like interface, but where the tools are rather than being modal, like you invoke them the same way you do the other things in Vlozure where you just grab one and drag it and drop it onto the thing you want it to have its effect on. Right. Especially yeah. if they're things that are, sort of discrete in the kind of effect that they perform rather than like a continuous operation. Mm -hmm. um, something that is like invoking this tool does a thing. It seems to me like there could be some very interesting ways to sort of vlogerify that way of working. And so I, I'm, I'm personally excited to see how that goes as you, as you explore that bringing editing tools into this. Cause yeah, that, that does seem like that would be, a nice way perhaps to do some more complicated edit operations that aren't perhaps as enjoyable to do just with like directly manipulating the, the nesting of the circles. Right. Yeah. Be, because like one, one, you know, relatively basic thing that's a bit of a hassle to do in Flozier right now is, you know, if you have some form and you want to wrap that form in, you know, another set of parentheses or in the case of Flozier in a circle, um, the, the only way to really do that right now in Blozier is to kind of drag an empty circle into, you know, wherever you want your thing to be and then drag the old thing into that empty circle and then go back and delete the original thing, which, you know, is, is like a, a three step process for something that should be one click, you know. So so I think uh, I, I'm hoping that having uh, this kind of like form bars uh, that can uh, contain these little commands will will really uh, help things be more convenient. Mm -hmm. uh, another um 
angle that I like to look at these tools from when thinking about how they could grow and evolve in the future is um, there's the, there's the angle we've been looking at so far, especially when it comes to ideas like here are things we can borrow from um, more conventional text-based or, or structural editing tools. And, and, and those things from borrowing from those tools are about editing the structure of the code. The other sort of half of this is about bringing in some aspects from the execution side, from the runtime side, from the evaluation side, and bringing those more into the environment. And right now, what Vlozier has is very similar to other conventional REPLs where you can evaluate a form and get the result back, but there's nothing in Vlozier yet that is about visualizing the evaluation or adding more leverage over how the evaluation happens. Um, there's nothing, as far as I'm aware, like a step debugger or anything like that. There's no way to kind of blur the lines between the structure of the code as written and then the actual operational semantics of the code as it's executed. And I'm wondering if you've had any thoughts about that or if that's an area that you're interested in exploring as you continue to work on this project. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, stuff like that uh, is definitely kind of on my radar and, and more you know, on a more basic level. Um, right now, Vlozier doesn't really provide you with anything in terms of like errors. Uh, if you drag something into the eval circle and, you know, the, it encounters an error during execution, uh, it just kind of gives you a big X in the eval zone to tell you like, hey, something went wrong, but it doesn't give you, you know, the name of, of the, the error or whatever. Um, so, so, you know, the first thing, uh, I need to do in terms of, uh, you know, making debugging uh, an easier process is just, uh, you know, having kind of, uh, some way for the user to, to see, you know, what kind of errors, uh, occurred. And, uh, when it comes to things like kind of stepping through code or, uh, yeah, more kind of like, um, specialized debugging tools. Um, I'd love to work on something like that eventually for Vlozier, but that probably won't be something that I get to, um, all that soon. Um, I've got a bunch of other features that are uh, kind of on uh, my to-do list, um, but but in, in the long run, I'd love to to see something like that. And one thing that I, I haven't talked about much, um, but that I think might kind of help understand the perspective that I'm coming from, is uh, at some point uh, once Vlozier is a little bit more mature, I'd love to try to make a version of it that works as like an in-REPL plugin. So that, uh, you know, it's not just something that you can use for, for ClojureScript in your browser, but it's also something that you can use for, you know, JVM Clojure, uh, where, you know, it, it'll basically act like a, a plugin tool. So you'll just run some uh, command on the command line and it'll start up, uh, you know, a little web server that connects to your, um, to a running Clojure process. And it will let you kind of uh, basically have a, a REPL um, for, you know, uh, JVM Clojure, but using the, the Vlojure interface. And so I think uh, when, when something like that uh, is, is done, it'll be a lot easier to kind of integrate Vlozier with existing uh, kind of debugging tools. So, you know, maybe uh, you can, uh, even if I don't do anything specifically for, you know, like a, a walkthrough or like a step through uh, interface in Vlozier, you know, you can uh, be doing your stuff in Vlozier. And then if you run into some error and you want to go, uh, you know, dig through the stack trace or whatever, then you can do that in, in some uh, existing tool that's kind of more specially uh, built for that kind of thing. That's nice. And that's that's an approach that I'm becoming more and more fond of is this idea of um, building these new programming environments as part of an ecosystem, like explicitly rather than as their own siloed thing, allowing them to be opened up to interoperate with other tools so that it like relieves you of the burden of having to 
address every use case and every need and every special way that people like to work by just saying this tool you know has its strengths and the things that you would want to use it for but it's not going to do everything for everyone and so just plug it into your existing workflow and use it for the things that it's really nice for and then go and use your other tools for the things that they're better at which I think, and this might sound a little bit confrontational, but I think it's an interesting uh, lens to look at things. What would you say are the strengths of Lozure compared to something like a traditional text editing tool? Like if I'm already using some, you know, like um, Parenfer or something like that, uh, and I have some nice way of writing Lisp code that I'm happy with, why might I want to use Lozure as a programming interface to work with what things would you say that it offers i'd I'd like to hear you sort of articulate like here are the strengths that vlozure has that make it compelling to use compared to a conventional tool yeah uh, that's a great question so i I think it'd be you know way over ambitious uh for me to expect that you know any any like professional closure developers are going to abandon their their current workflows and start using vlozure uh anytime soon um, but but where I think that Blozure uh, probably does have more potential is for people who don't uh, yet know Clojure or, or maybe don't even know uh, programming at all. Um, what, the biggest benefit that I think that uh, of Lozure has is that um, for, for a lot of people who are kind of looking to, to learn programming, just the idea of like opening some text file and editing text and, and you know, running console commands. Um, that stuff is all just really intimidating. But just saying, oh, well, here, you just drag these circles around and, you know, uh, you can do normal programming, but through this uh, kind of much more friendly looking interface. Um, I think that that's where where Vlozure's uh, biggest strength lies. Um, so I'm very interested in kind of making this uh, an educational tool for people who are just learning uh, Closure Script or perhaps just learning programming for the first time. I could see that being very appealing in that way because it's it's something that I think is a wonderful strength of visual programming in general is that it's, if nothing else, disarmingly different from what people might expect when they imagine what programming is like, which is kind of why I'm fond of that opening question, because when you're confronted with one of these visual tools, it's it feels more like maybe the sort of thing that people would think programming was like if they were just looking at like, you know, Hollywood, where people are waving their arms around and making robots do all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> people might look at that if they are very self-serious and they're very professional and they might sort of dismissively say, oh, well, that's not programming because it doesn't look like a, you know, a black and white text editor with a blinking cursor and, mm-hmm. and, and they might be kind of stuffy about it. But on the other hand, I think there's a bunch of people for whom it's, it's visual character is, is just sort of, if not charming, then at least kind of, uh, it would dispel some of the fear or the intimidation that they might feel by being confronted with the colder forms of programming that are, you know, text in a buffer and a need to like, you know, explicitly run some terminal commands in order to compile your code and right and go through all those hoops. And so I think that that's a really wonderful thing that these kind of visual tools can offer. And I'm I'm curious, I'll, I'll, I'll phrase this question in a slightly different way, because I'm, I'm genuinely curious, I don't have any thoughts about this, any leading thoughts, I should say, um, which is, do you do you foresee Vlozier having like a potential future where it grows in a way where you would find yourself using it for your own work? Like, is there some part of it that really speaks to you and the way that you like to interact with computation or interact with software, something about it that sort of 
um, is driving you towards creating it that you think you might want to use? Or is it something that you're creating for a different reason? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, so, so I guess uh, one one strength uh, of Lozier that I didn't uh, mention in the last question is just that, uh, you know, uh, some, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll be, uh, you know, out and I'll have an idea for a little generative art algorithm or something. And I'll, you know, have some some code that I want to write, but I'm nowhere near my my computer. So, you know, I just have to try to remember it. Um, but I always think it would be great if there were some uh, convenient way to just pull out my phone and do a little bit of, uh, of programming, right, and then save that code for for later. Um, and so that's kind of uh, one use case where I can um, maybe see even kind of professional, uh, you know, experienced developers using something like Vlozier as kind of a more convenient way to uh, to kind of interact with Vlozier on a touchscreen. This episode of the Future of Coding podcast is brought to you by Glide. Glide's mission is to create a billion software developers by 2030 by making software dramatically easier to build. We all marvel at how successful spreadsheets have been at letting non-programmers build complex software. But spreadsheets are a terrible way to distribute software. They are an IDE and the software built in it, rolled into one, and you can't separate the two. One way to think of Glide is as a spreadsheety programming model, but with a separable front-end and distribution mechanism. The way it works right now is that you pick a Google Sheet, and Glide builds a basic mobile app from the data in the spreadsheet. You can then go and reconfigure it in many different ways, including adding computations and building some pretty complex interactions. Then you click a button and you get a link or a QR code to distribute the app. The data in the app and in the spreadsheet will automatically keep in sync. For the Glide team, that's just the beginning. Glide needs to become much more powerful. Its declarative computation system has to support many more use cases without becoming yet another formula language. Its imperative actions don't even have a concept of loops yet, or of transactions. Glide needs to integrate with tons of data sources, and scale up to handle much more data. To do all that, Glide needs your help. If you're excited about making end-user software development a reality, go to glideapps, that's G-L-I-D-E-A-P-P-S, dot com slash jobs, and apply to join the team. My thanks to Glide for helping bring us the future of coding. I would like to thank Replit for sponsoring the transcript of this podcast. Replit is an online REPL that gives you a very immediately productive environment to get up and running with any number of different programming languages and frameworks and uh, tools that you can use, including Git integration. They have a multiplayer feature so that multiple people can hop into the same REPL and work on the same project together. It's all very batteries included, very easy to get started with and easy to scale up to much bigger projects. They've created this just fantastic sandbox for trying out new programming ideas, trying out new languages, they just have this constant stream of new things that they're adding and new ideas and new tools. And they're just absolutely firing on all cylinders when it comes to making this environment robust and productive. Even if it's not the kind of environment that you find yourself working in frequently, it's the kind of thing that's useful to have in your back pocket if you need to um, pop up something on the go and just test something out. Or if you want to, as a weekend project, stretch your legs on a new 
language, but not spend half the weekend installing the compiler and all the dependencies and getting your environment set up and, and going through all that work. So go to replit.com to check out their programming environment and all of the tools that come with it. My thanks to Replit for sponsoring the transcript and helping bring us the future of coding. So I have uh, one more kind of light and fluffy question about Vlozier that I, uh, I'm, I'm curious about. So it's a it's a visual environment and there are these circles that are nested within other circles and it's like the presentation of the code is two dimensional in its nature. But because of the nesting circles and because of the fact that it's a zoomable interface, it made me feel like um, as you are zooming in on the circles nested within circles that I'm actually going like into the screen and that there's some depth to it. And I'm curious if you also think of it that way where you sort of imagine it as like going into the distance and, and sort of like into a cave as you are going into your code. Or do you see it maybe as like a tower coming out, though that kind of, I guess, defies um, the sort of depth perspective? Or do you do you visualize this as just like a flat thing where the things are smaller and smaller? Yeah, I, I think I do mainly just visualize it as, you know, so, something flat where, you know, to, to see more detail, you just have to, to zoom in. I, I don't quite think of it in like a, a three-dimensional like, like depth way, but that, that that's, that's a cool perspective. I like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I mainly I just think of it as like a way of representing a tree. You know, that that's fundamentally what the, the core idea of Lozier is. It's not even particular or it's not even like specific to, to lists. You know, like any any time that you have a tree, you, you could represent it with, with something uh, like Lozier. And I think it's my, my feeling that every time I'm 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 descending into nested forms that I'm going into a cave is probably aided by the fact that the uh, user interface is sort of a dark theme, like a dark background with like slightly lighter shades for the foreground elements. And so it does have this kind of feel that I'm like, I've got a, a you know, a hard hat with a little uh, headlamp on it and I'm going into the, the coding cave as I'm exploring these deeply nested shapes. And so mm-hmm. that's... Uh, uh, There's more of a comment than a question, I guess, but uh, it's something that I'm I'm curious if that was uh, something that you also felt or not. But I guess I guess not. And that uh, brings me to the end of the questions about Vlozier that I had written down that I've remembered and the ones that I came up with along the way. And I'm curious if you had any other aspects of the project that you wanted to talk about before we move on to the last couple questions that I've got for this interview. Um, sure. Yeah, actually, there is one thing I'd love to mention. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm, you know, I'm very much a generative artist. That's how I learned, um, you know, to program in the first place. And I still do that kind of stuff all the time. Um, and uh, as I said, I want Vlozier, uh, or I hope that Vlozier can be used as kind of an educational tool. Um, and I think that one thing that would really contribute to that uh, is having uh, a, a sort of built-in connection between Vlozier and some kind of like JavaScript graphics library so that you can, uh, you know, be doing kind of like generative art through Vlozier. You know, so maybe the left half of your screen is, is what Vlozier currently looks like. And then the right half of your screen is like an HTML canvas that you can use, uh, you know, p5.js or, or pixie.js or whatever to, um, to kind of interact with, um, you know, on your phone or on your computer or anything. Um, so, so I'm very excited about that. I'd love for this to be kind of just a, a little kind of cross-platform generative art studio um, that you can use on any device. I think that'll be uh, really exciting once I've got that working. Mm-hmm. That was actually something I had 
wondered about as well because it feels like um it and it's it's one of those things where when i look at the different tools that are that are made by the people who like doing generative art and they tend to make these uh unconventional interfaces in ways that play nicely with generative art one of the sort of decisions that they always end up having to go one way or the other on is does the generative art live in the same space as the visual code or is it in a separate space? And so that was um, something I was curious about where if you were going to be using this for generative art, would you want the generative art to be on its own separate, like its own partition of the screen or something like that? Or have you thought about having the generative art exist in the same canvas as the, as the code that you're doing? Cause there's like, I think so many different interesting design decisions that can come out of going either direction with that decision. And I don't think that it's one of those things where there's a, an inherently right answer. And so I'm always curious about seeing which way people go one way or the other with that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, I, I, so far, I've just kind of been uh, assuming that it'll be something like, you know, one half of the screen is Vlogeur and the other half is, is your canvas. But I suppose you, you could have um, something kind of... Uh, different than that. Um, and I'm, I'm just kind of thinking through this in real time, but, but one thing that comes to mind is rather than having, you know, like, like a, a fixed, uh, background color, the, the kind of background, um, that you're seeing could just be your, your, you know, HTML canvas and the, the code, uh, you know, kind of the structure of your code is just overlaid on top of that canvas. And maybe if you just, you know, sit there and don't touch anything, then it kind of fades out. So you can see, you know, what your, uh, piece looks like without a bunch of code overlaid on top of it. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to think about that. Another thought that occurred to me since we're doing the thinking through it in real time thing, which I love to do on this podcast, um, is you could have it so that any of your forms, like your, your circular, uh, shapes in the visual canvas could have a separate view where they show their evaluated result, like over top of that circle. So you're like flipping between show it as the code view and show it as the, as the result view. And if the um, if the form is evaluating some kind of a renderable thing, like a like a bitmap or something like that, like it could just draw right within the the circle itself, and so you could have um, it, whether it's like this one circular construction that I've made that's running this algorithm is you know I could flip it to a different view and see it as the rendered result, or whether it's like maybe there's like a a second top level form that's like this form is where my render target is, and so I'm going to be in the one circle over here, building up the algorithm to, you know, constantly recompute what the pixels are in that target. And then I, you know, on the next circle over on my main axis is where the, the actual imagery is being displayed. Like, it feels like there's just a couple of different ways that you could sort of squeeze that idea of showing some of the uh, result of the rendered image that you're creating kind of right in line with the code itself. Though that does like, a little bit deviate from what's nice about having the eval corner too. Yeah, no, no, I, I haven't um, really thought about sort of having like just sort of live evaluation, you know, like it, whenever you change something, it just kind of re-evaluates the entire form because mm -hmm. I've very much been thinking of this as like a, a REPL driven workflow, you know, like you write your code and then whenever you want, you send it to the, to the REPL to, to evaluate it. Um, but, but that, I think I, I totally see where you're coming from. That could be a, a big benefit for something visual where just, you know, as soon as you change any bit of code, you can see, you know, what effect that has on your image. That would be pretty cool. It's, it's one of the things that I harp on about a lot on this show is like show data in the code, <laughs> show the data in the code in the same place. So I'm sure I sound like a broken record to a lot of folks listening to this. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, not sorry. 
So the the one other thing I wanted to get into um, now that we're into the back half of the episode and we can get into the kind of deeper, more nebulous kind of stuff is your project Broth. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> because it um, it's uh, I, I'm coming into this a little bit unprepared in that I I've seen some of the uh, imagery of this project in action as it was when you were working on it and I, in your blog post sort of talking about it. Um, but I definitely didn't read the post closely enough to come to a good understanding of how it worked and what it is. But what I found interesting about it was it looked to me like uh, like and just a very high level summary. It's it's a sort of a, a virtual artificial life environment that you've created where you set up um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you set up this sort of graphical environment where you have a number of sort of entities in this environment and they all have their sort of uh, rules guiding their behavior. And it's the system where you sort of let an evolutionary process play out. Is that kind of a fair, like very high level summary of it? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, so, so broth um, is was a, a project in in kind of artificial life, um, and, and broadly the the idea behind um, artificial life, or, or at least kind of the digital part of it, is to um, create simulations that uh, kind of capture aspects of biological evolution. So you know, random mutation uh, followed by you know some kind of natural selection process. Um, and, and the hope is that uh, we can create simulations where uh, things just as kind of rich as the, uh, you know, biological organisms that we see in real life um, can evolve within a kind of simulated world. And so that's what uh, Broth was an attempt at doing. And I found that project and, and I'm, you know, similar projects, like I'm sure a very familiar, if not maybe directly related example that we could point to is like Conway's Game of Life. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, there's organisms in that and it's it's evolutionary in its nature. And there have been all sorts of interesting projects taking that and and the idea of cellular automata and sort of spinning it into all these different permutations and these different things that have grown out of it. And even so far as I think Wolfram is doing some kind of sort of model of physics uh, and trying to unify. Right, yeah, theory of everything. Using, like, something derived from cellular automata as, like, a foundational principle or something like that. There's some some wild stuff going on there. Yeah, yeah, Stephen Wolfram is a, is a really interesting guy. I, I am kind of skeptical that <laughs> there, anything is going to come of that theory, but it's definitely interesting to read about. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's done really wonderful work on kind of the theory of, of cellular automata in general. And um, and kind of the the, the graph based um, kind of model that he's using for physics um, is is really interesting. Normally, cellular automata run on kind of like a fixed um, square grid or something, or sometimes a hexagonal grid or a triangular grid or, or whatever. But it's a very you know kind of fixed, regular uh, kind of background. Um, but what uh, Wolfram is is working on right now, um, instead of having kind of a fixed background, you have this graph um, that kind of represents both space and the things within space. And so kind of the structure of, of space itself kind of evolves over time, uh, according to the, the rules of the simulation. And so that, I think, is like a really uh, interesting uh, kind of elaboration on the idea of, of cellular automata. And I find that work really inspiring. There was a recent article that he put up about this work. It was interesting to me because it was presented as something that was talking about 
sort of fundamental aspects of physics um, and looking for maybe something even more foundational that he could use to express what we now have of physics in terms of a more foundational thing. And what he arrived at was something that I couldn't make heads or tails of as a non-physicist, but it was very meaningful to me in terms of how it made me reflect on uh, the behavior of programming interfaces and computation, especially the sensations of time within programming, which is a thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And so what I liked about looking at your project Broth, even though the aspects of it, which are about artificial life, went well over my head, it looked to me like a very interesting environment for coming up with a programming model like it was it, it's mm. it's got that nice relation that um you know like people have made programming models based on cellular automata that's a you know a, a classic iso lang kind of right uh, project that folks do and so i'm curious if in your work on the broth project if you see anything in there that feels to you like it's relevant to folks who are working on programming languages, and if there's any parts of that that you might point to as, as things that you played with or things that you found where it's like, this was interesting for simulating artificial life and as a, as a, as a simulation of something, but it's also something that would be neat to work with as a way of expressing computation more generally. Hmm. That's that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure if I have an interesting answer. Um, <laughs> but it, the the idea behind broth was it was more of a, a research project than anything into just kind of some uh, kind of ideas about um, how to achieve some goals in artificial life. So I, I hadn't really thought about it in the context of of what it might contribute to programming interfaces. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if I. Um, have much else to say there unfortunately <laughs> that's totally fine and that's that's one of the things i do on this show is i occasionally will throw a, a kind of a um i won't say a curveball uh, or i'll just throw a kind of a like a hey what if kind of question at folks and see if there's anything there and sure sure usually there's not um but that's <laughs> that's what we're here for we're trying we're uh, trying yeah, yeah. absolutely are there other projects like this that you've um, created where you've sort of been playing with like dynamic visualizations and interactivity and interfaces and that sort of thing that uh, that might be of interest to the folks listening to this show to go and check out? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I've, I've got a, a bunch of cool stuff that I uh, haven't gotten around to kind of writing up or making videos about yet. And um, I, I suppose one thing that um, one technique that I've been thinking uh, a lot about recently, which is useful uh, in, in generative art, but also I think um, might potentially be applicable in, in like a wide variety of areas, is um, this concept of aesthetic selection. And aesthetic selection is a technique that's um, very much inspired by uh, kind of evolutionary ideas. Whereas, you know, in biological evolution, you have uh, basically the two steps are mutation and then natural selection. So mutation is just uh, kind of blind variation of, of some like existing, uh, you know, genome or whatever. And then uh, after you've created a bunch of variations, you kind of narrow down this pool of variations by uh, natural selection. But of course, you know, there, there are, you don't have to just use natural selection. You can use any kind of, of uh, kind of selection mechanism. And there are, you know, all kinds of useful techniques in, in evolutionary uh, computation and in machine learning um, that kind of apply different uh, kinds of selection techniques to get sort of different, different evolutionary systems. Um, and aesthetic selection is a technique where you have uh, some system that is producing kind of variations. 
Um, and then in addition to that, uh, you uh, yourself kind of act as the selection mechanism. So a good example here is a uh, project called Pick Breeder by Kenneth Stanley um, that uh, anybody can Google and it's uh, very fun to play around with. And the idea is that uh, you start off with just kind of a, a random uh, image generated by an algorithm. And then uh, the, the system creates a bunch of variations on this image for you. And you go through and select the ones that you like uh, the best. And then you um, you say, okay, well, create some new variations of these. And it's kind of iterative process where uh, this, this algorithm is generating kind of variations for you. And you're picking out the ones that you like the best. And so it's kind of this... Uh, evolutionary process that involves both a, a computer and, and a user. And um, you kind of get to just use your uh, aesthetic sense as kind of the selection mechanism in this evolutionary process. Um, and I've explore, been exploring um, kind of systems that use aesthetic selection a lot in my uh, generative art recently. And um, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating technique because, you know, art in general can kind of be thought of as uh, you know, you, you're kind of conjecturing new ideas about what might make, you know, an interesting piece of art. You're kind of saying, well, maybe this would work. Maybe that would work. And then you say, well, no, that probably wouldn't work or that wouldn't work. Um, and, and the way that I think of aesthetic selection is that it's essentially uh, getting a computer to do the conjecture part for you, or at least help you in doing the conjecture part. And then your job is just limited to kind of uh, criticizing to saying, OK, well, I don't like that one. I do like this one. So, you know, give me more that look like that. And so, you know, the applications um, of this technique are, are most obvious in generative art, but I think that um, it might have applications uh, much more broadly. Like, I, I'd love to see, um, you know, systems where maybe, you know, a user can, like, customize their avatar on something by, you know, doing a sort of, like, aesthetic selection where it takes their current avatar and kind of modifies it and, and does stuff like that. So that's a technique that I've been thinking a lot about recently and I think uh, has a ton of potential. It makes me wonder if it made me wonder kind of two things, and maybe you're familiar with some of the work in this area and, and could say whether these things exist or if they've been shown to not work very well. The one thing I'm wondering is um, if there's any interface that would allow you rather than just picking like the example that you prefer the most, if there's some way to like sort of enrich the dialogue between the, the computer side of the system and the human side of it to say like what it is that you like or dislike about a particular thing that you're selecting. Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar with any systems uh, that do something like that. And, and that, that uh, would require kind of a pretty big um, kind of modification to the sort of normal way that aesthetic selection works. Um, because aesthetic selection un uh, fundamentally is a very simple process. You know, it's just that you, you have this algorithm for kind of blindly generating variations, and then the user gets to pick among those variations. And so if you wanted some kind of system to sort of not just have it be blindly varying, but kind of trying to vary in the direction that a user has kind of specified, then that, that would uh, make things uh, a lot more complicated. And, and one thing that I think is um, a really important insight that um, Kenneth Stanley, who I mentioned before, um, has made about kind of evolutionary systems is that um, it's often counterproductive to kind of be too focused uh, in advance on like what you want. W when you're interacting with kind of an aesthetic selection system, if you have like a goal in mind, like I want to evolve in, an image that looks like, you know, a cat or something, you're never going to find something like that, right? It's just it's just way too hard to, to kind of search through, um, you know, enough of the space to, to find something that fits any uh, particular preconceived goal that you have. Um, and instead, aesthetic selection um, works best as this very exploratory process where you don't have anything uh, in particular in mind that you're looking for. 
you're just kind of seeing these these different ideas coming at you and just looking at whatever piques your interest. You know, so it, it's not uh, I have this particular goal and I can, you know, articulate the things that I like about, you know, these ones rather than these ones. Um, instead, it's just, oh, that seems interesting. Let me explore that space more. Or this seems interesting. Let's go explore that space more. And is this uh, technique, is this idea of aesthetic selection, is it something that is so far being applied only to images and sort of generating art or imagery? Or are there people applying this idea to other media as well? Um, as far as I know, um, all all of the stuff that I've seen has been uh, kind of in the, the medium of, of visual art, um, either images or, or like 3D models or, you know, short little animations. But it can absolutely uh, be used in kind of a broader way. Something that I've been exploring um, recently has been uh, kind of using it to generate sounds. So uh, I've got this kind of little prototype of a sound design tool that I'm working on where uh, it will, you know, you click a button and it kind of plays you a random sound. And then, you know, you can play a bunch of these random sounds and you pick the ones that you like best and it'll generate variations on those. And you can end up finding some some really interesting uh, and unique sounds uh, using a tool like this. And so I think, you know, anything that can be sort of generated by uh, an algorithm can in principle be used with aesthetic selection. So uh, historically, I think it's mostly been used with with images and other visual stuff, but I think it uh, can be used for for absolutely anything. It reminds me a little bit of this uh, sound effect tool that was very popular in the indie game scene. Um, I mean, it's still popular, but I think it had its heyday maybe 10 or 15 years ago called SFXer. Oh, that's right. I, you know, I, I used that like 10 years ago and, and you're, you're just jogging my memory now. And, and that did have a way that you could um, could kind of vary uh, a sound randomly, right? Yeah, because it had it had like uh, it's just a very very simple sort of uh, original Nintendo style synthesis tool where it had a you know like a noise oscillator and a and a sine wave and a triangle, and it had you know a couple of parameters for each of them like amplitude and frequency and uh, some ADSR kind of stuff and and so it had like you know twenty or thirty different sliders and you could hit a button to randomize all the sliders and you'd get just like all sorts of weird random noises. Or you could um, pick one of the presets, like, you know, this is a sound for a, an explosion or a laser or a coin pickup or that kind of thing. And then there was a button that was like, vary all of the sliders just a little bit. And so you could jam on that button over and over again and get like slight permutations. Uh, but it wasn't directed. It wasn't like generate it in a in a particular like, oh, I like this variation better. So I can see this aesthetic selection being like a much nicer interface for using a tool like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm glad that you um brought that up because I had forgotten about um SFXR and that's that's a great example of kind of a a simple little aesthetic selection tool. Um but but yeah, like um I, I think the main thing um probably that that uh was was limiting in in SFXR was as you said it, you know, the way that it did the variation was that it had 20 sliders or something. Um and it just kind of like jiggled them around uh, randomly for each one. Um and I think a much more powerful model of kind of evolutionary computation is um, rather than having the the object that you're varying being like, you know, a vector of, of numbers that you jiggle around a little bit, um, you can actually evolve programs themselves. And Lisp is actually a great language for doing this because, you know, a, a Lisp program can be thought of as a tree and it's very easy to, to create variations on programs that are expressed as trees. Um, you can just kind of like uh, delete a little part of the tree and fill it in with some random operations, or you can kind of take two trees and kind of, you know, snap a branch off one tree and kind of shove it into the other tree. So uh, what I'm most interested in with aesthetic selection is uh, kind of 
evolving uh, programs like this. And, and the programs can be used to generate images, to generate sounds, um, whatever you want. But the the fact that you're kind of searching the space of all possible programs uh, effectively means that you're you're kind of exploring the richest possible uh, space that there is to explore. Whereas if if you're just kind of like varying, you know, the positions of twenty different sliders or something, then you're you're pretty limited in the kinds of sounds that you're going to to produce. Now you do say the richest possible space, but I think I, you know, given the choice between exploring programming and exploring like procedurally generated chocolates, I think I would much <laughs> rather have aesthetic selection guiding me towards the the ultimate um, tasty treat. Uh, but on a more serious note, the, the idea of using aesthetic selection with programs is very interesting because it makes me wonder all sorts of things. Like, what would you have to do? to ensure that the programs were sound? Is it doing some kind of like, you know, doing a quick halting problem like check on each of the variations that it's generating? Or is it using, you know, type systems or something like that to ensure that the the programs that are being generated are actually valid in some way? Like, what do you know about how to how to make it so that these generated programs are actually going to actually produce output? Or is that just part of the selection criteria that you as the user of the tool are going to evaluate these programs on the basis of? Yeah, no, you you raised a bunch of great points there. And and if anybody is interested in this kind of idea of uh, kind of evolving programs, um, I'd highly recommend John Coase's book, Genetic Programming, which um, is kind of uh, most of what's inspired my kind of views on kind of evolutionary computation. Um, And he goes over kind of uh, different algorithms for evolving list programs by kind of, you know, swapping different bits of of the uh, of the program trees. And and so when you're uh, looking to, uh, well, so you mentioned first off uh, of the issue of like types of, you know, how do you ensure that, you know, the right uh, kind of data is being fed to each function or whatever. Um, and, and one very easy way to do that is just to kind of uh, have it so that your, your uh, language that you're working in only has one type, right? So maybe all of your functions take in uh, like a list of, uh, or like a vector of numbers, or, you know, maybe multiple vectors of numbers and return a vector of numbers, and so if you're you're limiting yourself to to kind of a situation like that, then you know that no matter how you connect these functions in a program tree, you're going to end up with a valid program. And you also uh, brought up the problem of like halting, you know, um, how, how do you know that the programs that you, uh, you know, evolve are actually going to halt? Um, and it, it, it depends on how you define your language, um, because often in genetic programming, you're not technically exploring the space of all possible programs, because, of, co- of course, if you're exploring that space, then you're inevitably going to have some programs that don't halt. So instead, you know, rather than exploring, you know, the space of all programs, you can explore, you know, some smaller set like the set of all primitive recursive functions or something mm-hmm. so that you know that, you know, uh, everything is guaranteed to halt in a finite amount of time. Um, or, or, you know, an alternative approach would be to say, okay, well, we, we will include things like recursion and, and all this stuff that leads to, you know, potentially non-holding programs, but we're only going to run it for, you know, a thousand steps worth of computation. And at that point, we're just going to stop it wherever it is and, and take the current result, you know. So, so uh, you know, this is a very uh, kind of nuanced topic, and there's a lot of different approaches to, to call all the, the different problems that you mentioned. But thankfully, it's it's a well-researched area, and there's a lot of good, good literature on the subject. Are there any specific projects that you're working on or any ways that you're um, working to apply these ideas to your generative artwork or other work that you're doing that you uh, feel like talking about at this point? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping to make some videos about kind of the way that I'm using aesthetic selection soon. So hopefully uh, that'll be a good opportunity to kind of go into a lot more detail about this stuff. Um, but one thing that I've been exploring recently 
is uh, just using it to generate um, kind of little looping animations. And um, in particular, the way that this works is that you're evolving a program, right, which represents a function, and you generate an image from one of these functions by looking at each pixel on an image and kind of taking the X and Y coordinates of that pixel, feeding that into the function, and then the function returns a color, and you assign that color to that pixel. And then you go to the next pixel, you know, and do this for, for all the pixels in an image. Depending on kind of the character of your function, you'll get, you know, vastly different results. Pixels that are nearby one another tend to have like similar outcomes from the program. So there, there's still like visual coherence to the whole thing. Um, and, and well, that, that process uh, technically would just produce a static image, you know, because that doesn't take time into account. But if you want to create uh, something like an animation rather than a static image, then you do something similar. But rather than just taking in the X and Y coordinates, you also take in a time coordinate so that you're, you're, uh, you're producing a video rather than just a still image. And, and the, the process that I'm using there is, is very similar to plenty of uh, artworks that have been done in the past. Um, I think I mentioned Pick Breeder before by Kenneth Stanley. Um, that, that's essentially the same process uh, there that, that I'm using in my work right now, but I'm just applying it to kind of animations rather than still images. I look forward to seeing a video on your channel about how to use aesthetic selection to generate a YouTube channel where we can have an infinite <laughs> supply of these videos from you about things like aesthetic selection. Yeah, I'll make a collaborative uh, aesthetic selection uh, program so that everybody can design their own generative art YouTube videos. I think that would be a, a beautiful thing to bring into the world. <laughs> well, Ella, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on our podcast and, and doing this interview with me. Of course. Thank you for having me. And that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks again to Ella Hepner for coming on the show. Thanks to Replit and Glide for sponsoring. Thank you to you for listening. And if you would like to find links to any of the things that we talked about, you can find the show notes for this episode at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 54. And there'll also be a link to that in the description for this episode in your podcast player. Though now it's the end of the episode, so you'd better go fast if you want to find that link before it disappears from your feed forever and is deleted and vanishes and the bits go into space and get thrown the sun and they dissolve and they're gone and you'll never hear them again and this is the last time you will ever know about the show existing because it'll be wiped from your memory it'll disappear like all things into the great unending sands of the cosmos